Welcome to episode 64 of Primary Care Update. I'm Mark A. Bell, a family physician and professor at the University of Georgia and editor-in-chief of Essential Evidence Plus. I'm John Hickner, family physician and editor-in-chief of the Journal of Family Practice. Hi, I'm Henry Barry, a family physician and one of the co-founders of InfoPalms. We're recording today. Uh, it's the day after Veterans Day, and uh, we wish to express our gratitude to the veterans and their families, as well as those who are on active duty and their families for their sacrifices. Thanks, Henry. Well, well put. Um, on this podcast, we highlight patient-oriented evidence that matters, or POEMs. If you want all of the POEMs, one a day uh, via email, subscribe to Essential Evidence, where you get them uh, in your email inbox, plus a great primary care reference with over 800 disease and symptom chapters, thousands of interactive decision support tools. Check it out at EssentialEvidencePlus.com. Never miss a poem again. The opinions expressed on Primary Care Update are those of the commentators, and this podcast doesn't represent medical advice or the endorsement of any product. Uh, you can now get free CME credit from the Illinois Academy of Family Physicians. Go to iafp.mclms.net to claim it. By way of disclosure, Henry and I are paid by Wiley uh, to write the poems each month, but we're not paid to do this podcast. This week, we're going to discuss uh, some COVID. Uh, also, really uh, quickly, let's uh, talk a little bit right now about the uh, interim analysis of the Pfizer vaccine. So, what we know to date is that over 40,000 patients have been enrolled in this uh, phase three clinical trial. They were randomized to vaccine or placebo. Um, they've all had uh, the data come from people who had at least a week of follow-up after their second injection. And they report that there were a total of 94 cases in the entire population and a 90% lower rate of infection in the vaccine group. So, you know, my sort of grade school math tells me that means there were about 85 or so cases in the placebo group and about nine in the vaccine group. Now, we may be off by one or two, and it's kind of sad that they didn't tell us the actual numbers, but you know, that's what we know so far. Um, Henry, what do you think about this? Well, it's it's early, it's preliminary, and uh, we do need to give it time for things to play out, but it is hopeful. And it would suggest that that analysis that we reviewed a couple of uh, episodes ago that would suggest that maybe a 60 to 70% uptake of the vaccine combined with all of the other factors that we do to prevent the pandemic may be sufficient. John? With the small number of cases so far, it's difficult to say that the vaccine <clears throat> will really be 90% effective, but it's likely to be somewhere between, let's say, 80 and 95% effective. So this is good news. Um, I'm ready for it. Yeah, I think there's still some, clearly some questions. They're going to gather data till I think they hit 164 cases. Uh, certainly, uh, we hope that they will continue to monitor these patients long-term for uh, less common or uh, downstream kind of adverse effects. I think there are still questions about the effectiveness of the vaccine in older patients who sometimes require higher doses or have less of an immune response. Um, we don't know much about the cases themselves. We don't know anything about the cases, whether they were preventing all cases, severe cases, mild cases. Um, the, we don't know the impact on infectivity. So are people who are infected less likely if they're exposed to transmit uh, virus to people who, to others in their, in their circle? So a lot of, a lot of questions, but I agree, very hopeful. 
Uh, it's, it's about time we had some good news in 2020. Um, and the meteor missed us. That was the first thing. So <laughs> happy to hear that. Uh, this is the second bit of good news in 20, well, maybe the third, <laughs> at least in the last uh, 10 days. Um, so anyway, I'm going to go ahead and get started with my poem. Uh, the first one is from New York University's Langone Health Center. And they gathered information on uh, adults admitted with laboratory-confirmed uh, COVID-19 uh, during the summer between beginning of March and, and end of August of 2020. And they had mortality data for another couple of months. Uh, they developed a model for mortality that included patient demographics, a bunch of comorbidities, key labs like CRP and ferritin and LDH that are predictors of mortality. And then in their primary analysis, they calculated what are called standardized mortality ratios. Uh, so if the mortality is what you expect is the same, is unchanging, it would be 1.0. Uh, a, a decreasing number, a decreased SMR means that mortality is decreasing. And they calculated that for each month. And they found that the SMR decreased from 1.26 in March, so a little higher than the baseline, down to 0.38 in August. And they estimate that the adjusted mortality rate for hospitalized patients, people sick enough to get into the hospital, decreased from about 26% in March to only about 8% in August. They, they also uh, used a different statistical approach, got similar results. There's also a group in the UK that had similar findings. Uh, it's not clear why mortality is decreasing among the subset of patients who are sick enough to be admitted. Uh, we can speculate that treatment may have improved with use of uh, steroids, anticoagulants, less aggressive use of ventilation, proning, um, maybe some of these other treatments we've discussed. Um, it could be that it could also be a, a shift in, I mean, they did adjust for age, so I don't think it's a demographic shift, but there could be a shift in uh, who gets admitted to the hospital. But I think probably the most likely explanation is that treatment is improving and um, it's, it's certainly uh, better to have to be getting this illness now than it was in March. And that's hopefully a bit of good news as we head into the winter season. Henry, you have any other theories? Of course I do. So I have no doubt that we are, we've learned a lot in those early days about how to treat these severely ill patients that were better organized. We have more tools available to us. We know what's harmful and are able to avoid that. But I wonder how much of this could also be a reflection of uh, us identifying more patients with mild disease, potentially accounting for some of this, and that maybe we're also encountering milder strains. So if you recall a few episodes ago, uh, Mark talked about Michael Crichton's book, The Andromeda Strain. Now, okay, spoiler alert, if you have not read the book or seen the movies, you need to mute your headset because I'm going to disclose that the denouement in The Andromeda Strain is that this horribly virulent um, uh, germ mutated to a mild form. Sorry, I was distracted. Some flashing lights had me go into a petty mall seizure, and I, I completely missed that. Again, watch the movie. Um, so whatever Henry said, um, I'll, I'll agree with. Um, John, any comments? Yes. There, another possibility to account for some of it is that I think now <clears throat> that we know that older nursing home patients have such a high mortality rate, it may be that people are staying in the nursing homes and not going to the hospital 
patients may at their own request say, no, don't send me to the hospital, I'll stay here. So that could account for some of it. But overall, I, I agree with the findings and certainly other studies, as you said, have confirmed these findings. Thanks, John. And we're going to move on to another study. And this was one in the Journal of Clinical Microbiology. I should mention that previous study was in the Journal of Hospital Medicine, and the first author was Horwitz. Uh, uh, And um, uh, I'm not going to give you all the DOI details to find it, but hopefully you can find it. Um, The next one is in the Journal of Clinical Microbiology by uh, Adetia and colleagues. And this is really interesting. We don't do a lot of case reports, but I think this is a really interesting natural experiment in disease transmission. So before departure, the entire crew of a commercial fishing vessel up in the Northwest was tested using uh, reference lab PCR. And they were also tested for antibodies for IgG to SARS-CoV-2, specifically neutralizing antibodies. Now, everyone tested negative on PCR prior to departure. They couldn't get on the boat otherwise. One person was a false negative. They went on to infect, get this, 103 of 122 people on the ship, so 88%. Before departure, six of the crew tested positive for antibodies, of whom three had evidence of neutralizing antibodies. Um, the other three were thought to be false positives, which, you know, we know is kind of common with antibody tests. Now, here's the interesting finding of the 103 of the 117 crew without neutralizing antibodies were infected. None of the three with neutralizing antibodies were infected. This is incredibly unlikely to have occurred by chance and suggests that there is good immunity for those who have neutralizing antibodies due to previous infection. Of course, how long it lasts is an open question, but I just thought this was a really cool little natural experiment to report on. John? Yes, I agree. This is a very interesting natural history study, and hopefully it portends well for at least some lasting immunity after one is infected and hopefully with the vaccine as well. So are you testing the crew on your sailboat before you head out every day? Absolutely. Okay, good. All three. (laughs) <laughs> That's right. Henry? Um, I'll, I, it is good news. It is a, a small series, and I'll talk a little bit more about natural immunity when I do my studies. Great. I think you, it's time for us to get your quiz question. Thank you. We are recording just before Friday the 13th, and last month we had two, count them, two full moons. So this episode's quiz is inspired by medical superstition related to Friday the 13th. Which of the following statements about medical mayhem on Friday the 13th are true? One, unlike mayhem on full moons, there is a real increase in strange events in emergency departments. Two, the association is an example of measurement bias. Three, there appears to be no increase in medical events. Four, there is a higher rate of motor vehicle accidents. Stay tuned. Well, do you know what that second full moon in a calendar month is, Henry? It's called a blue moon. That's right. Once in a blue moon. I, I didn't know that till very recently, sadly. <laughs> my my oh. ignorance on full display as usual here. All right. Great song uh, too. Blue moon. Uh, okay, okay, okay. Stop, stop, stop. <laughs> oh, we may have a musical theme. He's going to bring us guitar. He's going to bring us guitar. I know it. Um, Henry, your turn. My first study is called the Placid Trial. This was an open-label phase two trial that took place in 39 hospitals in India. Uh, 
They randomized patients who had been hospitalized with moderate illness, that they had reasonable oxygenation, didn't require um, ventilation, things of that nature. And they randomized them to receive convalescent plasma from a matched donor or usual care. Now, usual care was just all over the map, uh, and it varied from each hospital, uh, but generally included some things that we alluded to earlier. <clears throat> About two-thirds of the patients had pre-existing comorbidities. Three-quarters were male. Nearly everybody, over 90%, had some shortness of breath. And two-thirds had chest x-rays that had bilateral, quote, patchy shadows, end quote. That was the specific language that they used in this. I'm not quite sure what exactly that means because it's not a standard interpretation. About a month later, it turns out that 18% of the control patients either died or had progression to severe illness compared to 19% of those that had convalescent plasma. Oh, oh, by the way, the convalescent plasma uh, wasn't um, all that great. So even though these were all adults who previously had PCR confirmed symptomatic episodes of COVID, 29% had no detectable neutralizing antibodies. So this was published in the BMJ by Agarwal and company. And since my second study is also related to immunity, let me go ahead and talk about that one, and then we can have our commentary. So uh, this next study was is on a preprint server, so it has the usual caveats that it has not been through peer review, uh, but nonetheless, it's intriguing. This was a study that took place in the United Kingdom. They had obtained blood samples from about 100 adults who were between 22 and 65 who had had SARS-CoV-2 infection six months before. When they went back and uh, collected samples from these individuals, it turns out that 95% of them had demonstrated a COVID antibody response to at least one of the COVID proteins. Now, there was a lot of variability in the magnitude of the response, but generally what they found was that those patients who had been symptomatic actually had higher levels of antibodies than those who um, had asymptomatic uh, disease. So it's a lab-based study, unclear that it translates to real-world immunity, but we've talked before about neutralizing antibodies and their importance. So these data on antibodies are fairly mixed. Uh, a week ago in the New England Journal, there was also an interim analysis of a phase two study of neutralizing antibody therapy. And in that, only one of the three doses had any effect, and that was on viral load, uh, but no real important outcome differences in terms of hospitalization rates, severity, and things of that nature. So to me, the overall bottom line from these studies is that natural immunity is probably superior to, quote, donated immunity. Mark. Yeah. So um, if anything, you know, the limitations of the first study's design, and by the way, I, I like their acronym. I can see where it comes from, PLASMA, COVID, PLACID. So they get uh, kudos for actually picking a decent acronym. Um, so yeah, the, it appeared the limitations would have actually biased the study in favor of the intervention, generally, if you have an open label kind of study. 
um, and otherwise it appears to have been well conducted. So it, it's disappointing. Uh, we do know that plasma, convalescent plasma is safe. I would say this isn't the final nail in the coffin for it, but um, it's, it's a bit disappointing. I, I would have hoped to see some benefit. It's uh, starting to look as though convalescent plasma is probably not going to have a major role in treatment of COVID. However, we have the cousin monoclonal antibodies, and that's still up in the air a bit. Uh, There must be enough evidence that at least one of them helps because FDA just granted emergency approval to one of the ones. I don't remember which one. It was the one I believe that Chris Christie received. Uh, So uh, we'll see. I think there's still not enough data to know for sure, but there must be sufficient data, at least for the FDA to say, okay, give it a whirl. Yeah, that was the one that David Lee Roth named Bam Lanivimab um, from that song, Oh, Black Betty, right? Uh, uh, I I did a little bit of snooping. Um, There is absolutely no data whatsoever on PubMed on a Calabavid, which is a COVID-19 clearinghouse. And I couldn't find anything on any of the preprint servers about this new um, agent. I also went to clinicaltrials.gov. There are five registered trials, only one of which is completed. And that one had all of 24 patients. So these data that are being submitted to the FDA are coming from someplace other than open sources that we can actually review. Yeah, that's that's a problem, right? That's that's a concern. So uh, thank you, Henry. Uh, we're going to go on to John's uh, poem or poems. Uh, this is uh, tos- you're going to tell us about tocilizumab, another monoclonal antibody. Yes, uh, this is a monoclonal antibody, uh, also called Actemra. That's the trade name. It's against interleukin-6 receptors, and it is used already to treat inflammatory arthritis and giant cell arthritis. Because of its anti-inflammatory effects, it was felt that it would be a good candidate for severe COVID-19 infection, uh, much of which uh, the morbidity is believed to be due to the severe inflammation. In general, we like to summarize individual studies, but due to the inconclusive data and the many studies that have come out recently, on tocilizumab, I thought I would just summarize them by using an editorial that was written by Dr. Parr and published in JAMA Internal Medicine Online on October 20th. Uh, In this editorial, he summarizes the results of five studies, one being the initial large observational study, two completed randomized trials, and two non-completed randomized trials that have reported interim results. And uh, I have a table summarizing these results, and you can get the script and the table by, once again, applying for CME credit at the Illinois Academy of Family Physicians, and you will find the script as well as a short quiz to get the uh, credit. At any rate, the initial observational study looked pretty good. The Stop COVID study found an improvement of 9.6% in estimated 30-day mortality. But of course, this... uh, Uh, observational study is subject to unmeasured bias, as is true of all observational studies. Uh, The two small randomized trials published online in that issue of JAMA Internal Medicine, however, found little, if any, benefit. The differences in mortality at 28 and 30 days, respectively, were 1.7 and 0.8, which were not statistically significant. And the two larger randomized trials called COVACTA and EMPACTA so far in the interim 
analysis found no difference in 28-day mortality, 0.3% and 1.8% actually favoring the placebo. These are preliminary results, but there are about 400 enrolled patients in each trial, which is more than there were in these smaller trials. There was a reduction in the need for mechanical ventilation in the impacted trial, but that's about it. Now, there was one other small randomized trial published in the New England Journal in October, which was not included in the PAR study, and that one found that uh, tocilizumab was not effective for either preventing intubation or death in moderately ill patients with COVID-19. So we have these five randomized trials. They're basically inconclusive because of small sample size, but taken together, the results are certainly not encouraging for this particular monoclonal antibody. So we'll see if any others uh, arise uh, and prove to have true effectiveness. Yeah, this um, was a, another kind of disappointing result, but it is it kind of highlights the importance of doing randomized trials, right? The observational study, as you mentioned, is subject to what we call unmeasured confounding. And that's a term I never learned in medical school. But what it means is when you do an observational study, you measure a bunch of stuff on two different groups of patients, and then you look at the differences in outcomes. You can only adjust for those things you measure. And it's only the variables that you gather data on or have access to or know about. And so unmeasured confounding are sort of unknown, unobserved, unmeasured differences between groups that seem to be associated with both getting the intervention and the outcome and can therefore confound or bias the results. Henry, any comments on this? Uh, really not much. These are incredibly expensive drugs that have often been developed for treating other disorders and expanding the potential pool of recipients is one way that uh, manufacturers can recoup whatever development costs that they might have incurred. Um, I agree that this is actually a disappointing in terms of the overall findings, but a good strong lesson in how you really do need to conduct uh, proper uh, clinical trials and not base decisions purely on uh, cohort studies and other observational studies. The current state of the art then is to use five bucks worth of dexamethasone to suppress inflammation, which does seem to have a positive effect. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, John, you want to tell us a little bit the about The last that? study we're going to present is kind of a folksy study, but with all those uh, non-mask wearers out there, I thought this is worth presenting. Uh, some people contend that they can't wear a face mask to reduce COVID transmission for, quote, medical reasons. Now, it's unclear what medical conditions would actually qualify as legitimate medical reasons. One possible reason explored in this study is that the mask might reduce the amount of oxygen in the wearer's blood, especially those with chronic pulmonary disease. To address this particular concern, the investigators recruited volunteers aged 65 and older who had cardiac or pulmonary conditions from a retirement community in Ontario, Canada. Each participant was given an oximeter and told to record the oxygen saturation, that is to wear the oximeter, which automatically recorded, during three time intervals, for one hour before wearing the mask, for one hour while wearing the mask, and for one hour after taking off the mask, all during usual activities of daily living. The masks were typical three-layer disposable non-medical masks, and participants were instructed in how to properly wear them. 
28 people were asked to participate and 25 agreed. Here are the results. The mean oxygen saturation was 96.1 before, 96.5 during, and 96.3 after wearing the mask. No difference, obviously. None of the participants' oxygen saturation fell below 92% while wearing the mask. The investigator's conclusion is this. These results do not support claims that wearing non-medical face masks in the community setting is unsafe. It seems to me more likely that people who say they can't wear the masks can't wear it because they tend to hyperventilate, perhaps causing some dizziness rather than due to oxygen saturation. So again, it's still not clear to me what a medical reason is for not wearing a face mask. Henry? Well, I actually did a little snooping, and there is a little bit of parallel data on those patients of ours who have to wear fitted respirators because of the work that they do, and the medical contraindications for those individuals are people with more advanced heart uh, problems, people with advanced lung disease, but the biggest one is, as you alluded to, is the psychological, those of our patients who have uh, claustrophobia. But that doesn't mean that they can't wear some kind of a face shield instead of a mask if it's uncomfortable. By the way, I imagine that uh, some patients who have uh, rather dramatic facial structure anomalies might have difficulties, not so much with comfort, but in having a mask that actually fits them well. Now, just to underscore your point, the CDC was it just yesterday or the day before updated their guidance that um, masks actually appear to be protective to the user as well as to those around. And so if we think about how we might stop this pandemic, it's going to include a vaccine, masks, physical distancing, hand washing, testing, contact tracing. It's going to still require a combination of those things that we see done very well in other countries. So I have another explanation, an allergy to science. That's why these people don't want to wear their masks or make this, make these excuses. I think it's a allergic condition. So, uh, well, we're going to wrap it up with the, the quiz answer. So the question was, which of the following statements about medical mayhem on Friday the 13th are true? One, unlike mayhem on full moons, there is a real increase in strange events in emergency departments. Two, the association is an example of measurement bias. Three, there appears to be no increase in medical events. And four, there is a higher rate of motor vehicle accidents. So the link between bad luck and Friday the 13th is... Uh, based on lots of uh, myths and legends, but is a relatively new phenomenon since the 1800s. My, my personal favorite is uh, that this is actually a cause by what happened on October 13th and 1307 when King Philippe IV of France arrested Jacques de Molay and all of the other Templars he could get his hands on and executed them. Bad luck for them. Uh, regardless, this superstition really just causes lots of trembling and fear among health professionals when a Friday the 13th or a full moon arises. So to test whether this is a real thing or an example of something called confirmation bias, which is a tendency to interpret information that meets our preconceptions, I found a paper by Lowe and colleagues that was published in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine in 2012. 
They reviewed data from six different emergency departments. And what they did was they took a lucky seven years worth of Fridays the 13th, or is it Friday the 13th? I'm not sure which is grammatically correct. But they tried to see what they would uh, find in terms of oddities. Uh, what they did was they looked at all of the Fridays the, a week before and a month before each of these uh, Fridays the 13th. And they looked for specific things like motor vehicle accidents, trauma, cerebrovascular events, heart attacks, things of that nature, animal bites, and psychiatric evaluations, a nice range of things. And what they found was that there were about 10,000 Friday the 13th visits and 40,000 control visits. And the volume of visits was the same on each of the Fridays, regardless of whether it was the Friday the 13th or not. And that the only unlucky event that they found was that there was a slight increased association with penetrating trauma on Friday the 13th. Now, they did a lot of analyses. And so my sense is that this single observation is probably a random event unless people are driving wooden stakes through the hearts of uh, some of these victims. By the way, several other studies have also evaluated the effects of lunar phases on surgical outcomes, motor vehicle accidents, and have, have debunked all of this, yet the myth persists. So the real answer is three. There really isn't anything going on there. Don't forget about lunar phases and deliveries as well. And that unfortunately has also been debunked. So there are no more deliveries during the full moon. Okay. Fully debunked. Um, that's what we like to do here. Tell you the truth. Um, so this is uh, the end of today's discussion. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, please tell your friends and we'll talk to you soon. Uh, the Illinois Academy of Physicians is accredited by the ACCME to provide CME for physicians. They designate this internet enduring activity for a half a credit of PRA Category 1. The IAFP adheres to the conflict of interest policy of the ACCME and the AMA. It's the policy of the IAFP to ensure balance, independence, objectivity, and scientific rigor in all its educational activities. Again, you can go to iafp.mclms.net for CME credit. Thanks, everyone.